Hey everybody and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul and I am your host as is usual. And today I am pretty happy to say uh, I have something, someone super interesting and a little bit different from the sort of musician performers that we have on. Her name is Paula Moore and, and I guess the best way to describe her is a music industry veteran and an A&R sort of legend. I don't know, Paula, how else, how else can I describe you with all <laughs> from there? I mean, I don't know about legend, but I would say that I was the first female in our research executive in the music industry, which now is a, a very prevalent role and an important role at most labels and distributors. And, you know, across the board, research has become very valuable and important. So I did open the door for for more people to have those those job opportunities and kind of set the set the bar for um, cool. where A&R research is today. <laughs> and, and so you, you've recently started another company. You've started many, which we'll talk about. It's called Greater Than, and you've written a book called Glitter and Grit, Be Greater as a Creative. And we're going to talk about all of that stuff. And as always on the show, I'll drop the links for everybody that's interested in, in, in um, catching up with everything that you're doing. Let's start with a pretty basic question. I have a lot of uh, artists on this program, some who are in local scenes and just starting out and, and you know have dreams of becoming big big rock stars. What does an A&R person do? I think everyone knows that term, but I think many people don't really know what that means. So essentially, being in the role of an A&R executive or scout, you're looking constantly looking for talent that will fit the roster of the company you work for um, and hopefully try to sign them. And there's not so much artist development happening in, in the A&R role these days, but definitely being the, the advocate that helps get that record done and get it out and hopefully help build the career th through that process. Okay. So when you say find, find talent or find artists that, that fit the label. So that really means it's not necessarily a band or an artist that you perhaps like yourself. It's more about finding someone that fits what the company wants to do. Is that the idea? Well, you know, A&R people are typically very passionate music enthusiasts and mu music lovers. But when you work for a company that, you know, it becomes art and commerce, you know, it right. starts to get together. There are, you know, there are certain deliverables and requirements and, and, and parameters that you have to work within. So, like, if you work for a cool rock label, right? Like mm -hmm. you're looking for rock artists. So same thing, even when you go to a major label that has a, a, a more diverse and, and, and deeper roster reach, if you are an A&R person that, that is in the pop A&R or in the urban A&R departments, you're looking for, you know, kind of artists that fit into the roster uh, plans mm -hmm. for, you know, for that particular area of the business that's not to say if you find, you know, the next Metallica, man, bring it, right? And then hope, hope for the best. But, right. but, you know, if you're working for, if you're working for one of the labels that, that doesn't really uh, typically sign a rock artist, then they probably don't have the, the marketing and the infrastructure that will help that artist see success. So okay. that, that's what I mean by kind of fitting in with the, with the label you work for. And our interest and in, in, in our taste, 
you generally try to go get the job at the label that that fits your taste right, right? so that right. you can find those artists that that fit with their roster right uh one of the things in in reading your book one of the things that struck me was this idea that people that are in you know maybe the machinery of the music industry are as creative as the the artists that are out there trying to get into the industry, right? And and I think that that's something that I didn't think of before, um, but your book really talks about the, the creative part of it. So um, so what does it mean to be creative, but, but not an artist in the music industry? Or at least what does that mean for you? Well, for me, I mean, I'm not a music artist, but, but I am an artist in, in different mediums. Um, and I think for me, my creativity blends into everything I do. So whether it's it's coming up with a creative marketing strategy, you know, knowing the elements. If you're if you're a music artist, you know how to put your song together, right? Mm-hmm. So think of your music executive partners in the same way. They know how to put together a strategic creative plan that supports your release. I mean, they're, they're being just as creative for you on the business side as you are on the, on the artist side. And when you think of it that way and you really appreciate and value the creativity of the people that, that you, that you have around you as your team or as your label, um, I think there's greater benefit to it and greater potential for success in that relationship and therefore success for an artist. Okay. So what are the things I always think about when when bands think they're able to get to the next level um, is how their their presentation to the rest of the world is really kind of terrible. You know, they're not good at getting photographs taken or they're doing the train tracks or the brick wall or they're, you know, drawn pictures for their for their album covers or, or things like that where they think it looks good, but it just, you know, w- in context, it looks it looks awful, right? So, how does a band get from how does a band get from that point where they think everything that they're doing, they can control every aspect of what they're trying to put out into the world, and giving up some of that to people who, quite frankly, are just better at it, right? How, how do bands how do bands make that shift? I I think it's not a natural thing. Well, I think I have have a dual response to that. So one is. I wholeheartedly believe that a band, an artist, any creator needs to understand what their brand is. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they selling? What are they sharing? And and make that a cohesive plan. Like, when you see, and I, I don't know why I keep using Metallica, but it's in my brain today. <laughs> but when you see anything that's associated with Metallica's brand, you know what you're going to get mm-hmm. and you've already bought into it. So everything just kind of is is masterminded or, or part of the flow of that, ex- an extension of that brand that they created at some point was their core piece of who they are out there. Right. And the other part of that handing that over, I don't feel like anyone should ever hand over full control of the reins of their creative brand. Okay. And, and I talk about that in the book because I've done that myself, hired people, built teams and just handed everything over and didn't, didn't, keep my hand on the pulse of my brand 
and sometimes things got lost or, or misdirected. So I feel like when you bring other people on or when it's time to bring additional support on, whether it's marketing, whether it's a manager, whether it's wh whomever it is, that you still, as an artist, as a creator, maintain some level of oversight mm -hmm. of, your, of your personal and professional career business brand. So I, that's one of the things you also talk about quite a lot in in the book is this idea that you yourself, Paula Moore, have made many many mistakes in your career, and now you're you've written a book and try to try to help people navigate through 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 those mistakes. Um, and and you definitely talk about th this idea of betrayal or you know it's hard to trust people. Um, how do you, how like if you have a new artist or you're you're trying to develop someone how do you how do you talk a band or an artist through those sorts of ideas because maybe a band's going to be super naive and think you know I'm going to sign this this piece of paper and I'm going to be a superstar and that'll be that yeah I mean look I, I I do think that that's that's always the dream right like somebody's <laughs> somebody walks into your life and says hey I can make you a star or I'm going to give you everything I've got and 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 help you grow and 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 be the superstar that i know you can be and of course you want to believe those people i believe those people when they come into my life but there has to be a point where you control and own your creative house which is your creative vision your creative business and say okay great but let's talk about some milestones mm -hmm. like i love that you love me i love that you want to help me but how are we going to get there and yes, I will trust you, but at some point, if you don't deliver, I will fire you. Right, right. You know, you just have to be ready to do that because, right. and, and betrayal, when I talk about it in the book, in some cases, it was brutal, like outright betrayal, but also in some cases, it was probably not intentional. Mm -hmm. People meant to help me, meant to deliver on the jobs that I hired them for, and then just couldn't and and yeah. and that just happens it happens so you as an artist as a creative professional have to know that those things are going to occur and be prepared and know in advance what where the line is drawn like where you stop mm -hmm. believing where you stop trusting or where you end the relationship right you, you use the word house. And uh, so one, I'll say a couple of things about the book. The book is is great for for anyone that hasn't, you know, has an idea about what they might want to do with a with a creative career. Um, it's very easy to read. Um, and you use the house metaphor through the entire thing, right? So how did you come up with that framework of of using the house metaphor to make it more easily accessible? Because it really works for for the information you're trying to put out there. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I just at some point, you know, I've had a lot of companies. I've been an executive at major companies, but I've also created a lot of startups. And one thing that I realized throughout the way is I was always like heads down, you know, working, working, working and sometimes letting a piece of that was very important to me create creatively not be in the forefront and not not be at the forefront of my mind mm -hmm. so when i started looking at 
for example, building building a company or being in an executive role at a major label, you have this kind of core competency, this core thing that you have to do. But in reality, for me, everything that I did was based on my creative flow. And everything came out of what is my intellectual property that I've done. And so that I started looking at that from from a creative house standpoint, like everything that I brought into a partnership, everything that I brought into a company, everything that I brought into any deal that I did came from this, this kind of centralized Mm -hmm. philosophy. And I just, at some point in the past couple of years, I really started to hone in on that because I wanted to take better care of my creative intellectual property, my creative self. And I just started looking at it like it was a house. I have different things that I use and and some of them flow together, like the floor plan of a house. And some of them, you know, are a specific room that I bring into a a particular deal. And it just worked for me Mm -hmm. to call it my creative house so I could take care of it and keep it tidy, you know, renovate it when I needed to. (laughs) (laughs) All of which are in the book. Uh, One of the things I want to talk about is um, in in particular is in chapter four, something called exterior. Um, and then you, you talk a little bit about focusing maybe too much at some points in your career on, on your exterior, what you're presenting to people. Um, so I, I want to talk about that a little bit, especially in the context of being a female person in a male dominated industry and in how much shit you got for that, or, you know, how do you really feel like you had to work a lot harder because of your gender in in the music industry? I think, well, I don't think I had to work harder because I, I, wor- I work hard anyway. Like, mm-hmm. that's my ethos. But I do feel like I had more to prove mm-hmm. to stand, you know, shoulder to shoulder with my with my peers and with other executives and also to be heard by by senior executives that i felt like you know my voice was was a lot a little bit smaller sometimes Mm -hmm. than than my male colleagues Mm -hmm. um but it it didn't bother me in, in in that regard i guess what bothered me just from being you know especially as as a young female executive you know going going out all the time to clubs by myself and doing a lot of things that that i think men may take for granted it, it's it's it can be worrisome and and frightening you know being out all the time by, by yourself as a young female ex- executive doing all the things that your male counterparts do but you're still walking to your car alone at night at right. 2 a.m after right. seeing like five bands and then working all day prior to that in the office and you know all the things that go into that and, and you know quite honestly it was exhausting for so many years working you know 10 to 14 hours a day trying to find talent and then you know being fearful sometimes trying to go to my car to go home at night (laughs) so there there are things like that that just women have to you know pay more attention to i guess in in certain scenarios so that that was the only thing that i think was was the worst part of it for me right okay then let's take a step back so you started out in texas and you, you were working as a promoter and you were you were putting on shows um, I want to ask you a very specific question. I live in Pittsburgh. I'm involved in especially the punk rock scene here in Pittsburgh. 
And one of the challenges of our music scene is there are 10 shows every Friday and Saturday night, right? And and you're competing against your friends, right? So you're, you're, you're friends with every band that's playing in 100 different shows every night. Um, I have to feel like that, that those are things that you faced as well in these bigger markets, Houston and Austin and Dallas. You know, how do you make you, how did how did you figure out how to make your show stick out? Well, I, you know, I, I think marketing back then was a little different. <laughs> Didn't have social media right. and I really relied on my network, um, especially I, I having yeah competing with my friends but friendly competition right right, right. of course yeah <laughs> but but also supporting other people i think helped me to get win some loyalties locally right mm -hmm. of people just at least stopping by my shows or you know making an appearance mm -hmm. um but then from a marketing standpoint i think just really building outside of the music community, building a lifestyle network, right? So tattoo shops and coffee houses and, you know, all the other like creative lifestyle elements that, that surround the music community mm -hmm. was really my go-to, you know, making sure that I was friends with all the people that ran little cool boutiques, you know, clothing boutiques for all the punk rockers shopped or whatever, like all those things added up in addition to being invested in the local artist scene and the local club scene. So I think just kind of building out your network and, and reaching more people that also love music, but maybe aren't directly intrinsic right. in the, in your scene right. helps a lot. Right. That's, that's great advice. Um, like a lot of things in life when, when you're younger, um, people don't necessarily decide they want to, um, be a certain role, right? So in the in the medical industry where I do my day job, people aren't like, oh, I'm going to be a quality manager someday when I grow up because that's not any, a thing that anybody thinks about. Um, so I'm interested in how you decided you wanted to be a music scout or an A&R executive because, again, that's not something, at least to my knowledge, that people, like when their kids are like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start finding these bands and, and, and getting them signed to labels. That's just not a thing that happens, I think. Yeah, no, you know what? It's so funny because, you know, I have an uh, A&R scout training program. I have the only one in the industry right. and a lot of our scouts, I mean, that's, that is one of their first questions. Like I didn't even know this existed until someone told me and, or I went to a show and I, I met someone who did it. And, and that happened for me too. I, I actually didn't know that job existed when I started promoting at clubs in Dallas. And um, the reason I found out it existed was because I was helping local bands right. and someone from a label called me and said, Hey, I'm coming down to see this band, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't, what do you do? What is it? What? <laughs> And then that's when I found out and I was like, oh, well, I want to do that. That sounds great. Um, and then I happened to meet a couple of other local scouts in, in my region that were scouting for, for labels. And I was like, oh, OK, so it is possible for me in in a not so major music market. I mean, Dallas is a big city, but it wasn't really like getting a lot of attention from our music scene at that time just yet. I mean, it ended up having having its moment but 
it wasn't like there was an onslaught of, of label or, or industry people rolling up in Dallas to see bands at that time. So, but then, but then it started to happen. And part of that happening was I, me and other people in the music community creating more opportunities for artists to showcase and 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 be able to build audiences at live music venues that we were all kind of building up so yeah i mean i didn't know it existed a lot of people don't don't know that when they're starting out and then somehow it kind of makes its way to you and and that's what happened to me and and then i started really pursuing it right uh, one of the other things you you talk about going along with this with this uh, conversation is doing too many things or being too busy. You know that that's something that I hear sometimes because I play in bands and I put on shows and I have a little label and stuff like that. And and my answer really is well because I like to do it. You know what I don't know what else I'm I'm gonna do. And in in the book you describe some sometimes people saying you're doing you're doing too much. So so what did that mean for you when when you heard that? You know, it it kind of is like when people say, well, let me play devil's advocate. And early on into, you know, recent years, actually, I, I, I would allow people to to do that to me, but I don't any longer. Mm-hmm. It, it's my choice and my vision that's important to me. And my choice is to do as many things as I can for emerging talent, whether it's artists, whether it's the next generation of A&R scouts, whether it's you know changing the game with independent distribution. Mm-hmm. I, I'm doing all of those things because it matters to me and my career has always been about serving emerging talent in every way that I can. So that's my choice and that's my vision and just because someone else doesn't really understand it or has never walked in my shoes doesn't mean that i should listen to them tell me that i'm doing too many things or that you know they don't understand my vision or they want to play devil's advocate and 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 break down my vision because they're not going to do it and that's and that's their thing but i am going to do it so and you, you definitely talk about self-discipline and taking care of yourself and and your mental health at various points throughout the book and i think that that kind of goes along with exactly what you're talking about right now right you got to have that confidence that that you're doing something that you, that you want to do well exactly and just and being mindful of of where your own breaking points can be, which I, I wasn't for so long because I was just like nose to the grind, like doing, 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 mm-hmm. and not really paying attention to the fact that I might have been destabilizing myself, even though I was working so hard. So I have definitely learned to check in with myself, not just on occasion once a week, but throughout my day, every day, mm-hmm. and really just minimizing my my stress level and minimizing the opportunity for my my never-ending task list to overwhelm me (laughs) (laughs) so so switching gears here slightly i'd like to talk about a couple of points that that you make in in the book um which i thought were interesting so you produced the lollapalooza after party so what what does that mean to produce an after party well, you know, that was way back. You're going way back. Um, so that was when Lollapalooza first, the very first year, um, when it was a touring festival. Mm-hmm. And 
at the time, I mean, I don't know that it happens like this anymore, which is unfortunate because it was so fun. But at the time, you know, there was there were always like these after parties after big shows and someone had to do it. Right. So like I did one for nine inch nails after their big tour and, and did the Lollapalooza one. I've done like a ton of them back in the day. That was like the thing. Mm -hmm. There were also like local offices for major labels, which don't exist anymore either. Like they would have, they would have like an office in Dallas and, and all these other cities where they basically had on the ground marketing reps that, wanted to make sure that the that there was more exposure locally for um the kind of influencers if you will mm-hmm. of the time being able to have that you know meet and greet kind of experience in a in a after party type of environment so that's really what it was there was a huge guest list of basically every music enthusiast influencer in, in in the city and surrounding of Dallas that was invited by record companies and artist managers and agents and you know the whole like industry that was involved in that Lollapalooza tour every city that there was an after party all of those all of those industry people were putting people on the list to just kind of build that momentum for for Lollapalooza's you know breakout year (laughs) and uh, so that's I produced that. So it's basically it's a party and the idea is to have fun, but it's it's a big marketing opportunity, basically, which yeah. I never actually thought about more than just yeah. a party. Cool. Yeah, networking and marketing and, and just, you know, that connection to the local lifestyle people that are going to be your, you know, be your advocates for that festival or multiple artists that were playing that festival. Exactly. And one, uh, so another one going, going back a bit, uh, you mentioned it in the book that you did some work with Mark Cuban right at the forefront of digital music and him selling it to, to Yahoo and all of that. And you said your mistake was you did it for free, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Mark and his partner were so sweet. And I listen, I, you know, I was a t- young 20 something girl that was just trying to bring opportunity, more opportunities for exposure to local artists. And I also was, you know, trying to build my visibility too as a curator, which we didn't use that word back then, but as a curator of what was happening in in the local scene. And so I created a festival and I was actually the first, even before South by, I was the first creator of a conference and festival that incorporated brands. Mm -hmm. So I got brand dollars to pay for everything so I could make it free. And then I curated a hundred artists that were from the tri-state area that were kind of like coming up and, and, and emerging as, you know, the most interesting hundred of, of right. that area. And Mark Cuban and his partner had moved into an office across the street from my, I had, I was running a little independent label at the time and they had moved into an office across the street with their company broadcast.com and they wanted more content, which we weren't calling it content then, but they wanted more content. And they were like, well, we'll give you, you know, some some equity in our company if you let us film your performances. And so I did call a couple of the bands and was like, can we film? And back then it was like, no, 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 we don't want that. We don't want to give rights away. And we don't even know what that is. <laughs> you know, we, we don't, it, internet was not... <laughs> You know, it was just barely happening in the 90s. So I was like, okay, well, I convinced a few a few of the artists to, to let us do it as a test and, you know, see what happened. And 
because I couldn't get a lot of the artists on board for it, that's when I went back to Mark's partner and I was like, we'll do it, but I can't get you all the venues because all the artists won't agree to it. So I'll just, we'll just do it. It's fine. I don't need anything from you. I don't need the equity. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to help you out too. And that's what I get for being a helper, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, a lot of money. <laughs> But who knew, right? Like twenty something being offered equity. That's that's yes. that's the advice right there. Anytime anyone offers you equity, take it. Take it. it doesn't yeah. matter if it succeeds or not. If it succeeds, you'll be happy. Cool. Then just one more thing here before I let you go. The time always goes by so fast. You you mentioned um, a person named Jorge Hinojosa. Hopefully, I'm saying that properly. Okay. Um, and he, be, you know, you worked with him a lot. He became your manager. You describe all of this in the book. And again, I would encourage people to read the book. It's, it's really easy to read and there's lots of uh, cool stories and good information in there. But anyways, he talks about the importance of roles or he, he maybe taught you about the importance of roles within the industry and sort of staying in your lane and making sure you're, you're doing what you're doing. And I want you to apply that to greater than. So now greater than is your, is your, is your new project. So, so when you, when you take all of this stuff that you've learned throughout, throughout your career and the stuff that you talk about in your, in your book, how does that apply to greater than and, and what are you hoping to achieve now? So with greater than, I mean, my primary focus is, is what it's been my entire career, which is helping, um, aspiring artists and emerging artists and aspiring creatives um, realize their 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 dreams and their goals to the best of my company's ability or my personal ability. So, building out um, different services and and ways that I can be of service is really what Greater Than is about. Building a platform and you know different types of teams and opportunities for people to shine. And then taking all of my network and, and the access that I do have to decision makers in the industry and bringing them, you know, curated choices of, mm -hmm. of things that they should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, one last thing now that you mentioned that that I wanted to ask you. So on this program, I interviewed Mike Park. Uh, famous ska musician. He owns Asian Man Records. He famously runs it out of his mom's garage still to this day where he boxes up the records and sends them out. And he was he was great on the show. Um, and one of the things he told me was he doesn't he doesn't listen to he doesn't open emails. He doesn't listen to unsolicited stuff anymore. He just, it became too much for him because he, it's a one man thing, right? So he's like, if you send me something, I'm just probably not ever going to listen to it. So if, if a band in Pittsburgh is going to send you stuff because they think you can, you can help them, you know, does that work? What is, what is the approach? Yeah, we've made it work. I mean, one thing, of course, my inbox and my email inbox is pretty crazy, but <laughs> We have a Discord channel that we have okay, now, my cool. wonderful team has set up so that we can take submissions straight through Dis Discord, but also through all of our social media platforms. I have a constant flow of AR marketing interns um, that we rotate every four months, but they're very dedicated to pulling all of those submissions and inquiries into, into the flow and into the mix of our AR scouting program. So the scouts are we have 350 scouts around the world that are always looking for emerging talent and reporting on them weekly. Um, 
We also host a, a live ANR meeting, the only ANR meeting that's live in the industry on Instagram every week. So artists can hit us up there too. I'm, I'm trying to make it easy right. for artists to, yeah. to get into our inbox, but not necessarily email me directly because it's, it's not my fault. I just can't keep up with my emails. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, once again, for everybody that's uh, listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Everything that you do for us is very much appreciated. Please give us a like on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out the most. I will drop all the links for for uh, Paula Moore um, and her book and Greater Than. Uh, you should definitely check it out if you're at all interested in trying to be successful in music, which, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, I think that that's one of the reasons you are. Uh, the book is legit pretty cool. Some of the stories that I didn't even touch on, like the Kurt Cobain story and just all of the label stuff through the early 2000s. Uh, it's it's quite impressive, Paula. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Paula. It was so fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you.